Welcome back to The Benefit of Hindsight. Today, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to do one interview, one exclusive interview, probably the most important interview you're going to hear through this whole thing, and that's with Gary Schultz, who's a very key part of this whole case. John. Gary Schultz is a uh, former vice president at, of administration at Penn State. He was one of the three administrators who was indicted and then later convicted of a misdemeanor because he pled guilty in the so-called cover-up of Jerry Sandusky's crimes. And uh, Gary Schultz is, uh, to me, maybe the most important and fascinating figure in, in all of this, at least among the people who are not necessarily household names. And this interview, as you've already alluded to, is one of many that we did for this podcast, but it is probably our most significant. In a rational world, it would be newsmaking. This is the, actually technically, second interview that he has ever done with anybody in the media about this entire story. The first one he did was also with me uh, a couple of years prior, back in 2018. We will make that one public on our website, framingpaterno.com. That's framingpaterno.com, as well as this entire interview. But this is so significant and so good, we wanted to make it its own separate episode of the podcast. And what I think people need to understand about Gary Schultz and how far this whole thing has evolved, Liz, when this story started, I actually had my greatest suspicions about Gary Schultz. I didn't buy the cover-up theory, but if there was a cover-up, it always appeared to me that Gary Schultz had to be the key guy. And there were things about the narrative that even I, Liz, even I didn't necessarily buy 100% into, but at least I thought, boy, that certainly seems suspicious. Things like the supposed, you know, Sandusky secret file and and elements of, of the alleged cover-up. And what you're going to find here uh, is that all of that is utter bullcrap. Uh, that the real Gary Schultz uh, is not somebody capable uh, of covering up for child sex abuse. And uh, there's no evidence that he did. There's no evidence that there was a cover-up. And most amazingly, you're about to hear in this interview, Gary Schultz say publicly that even though he pled guilty to a misdemeanor, thinking he wasn't going to go to prison, a misdemeanor involving a cover-up for Jerry Sandusky, he does not believe Jerry Sandusky is guilty. He does not believe that he's a pedophile. He has seen no evidence that Jerry Sandusky is a pedophile, and no one would be more privy to evidence if that was the case than Gary Schultz. And he is the key, the key cog in my theory that the McQuarrie date to this day is completely wrong, and that it actually happened on December 29th of the year 2000 and not either of the other two dates that the prosecution had pretended that the McQuarrie date occurred on. So this is significant on so many different levels and he was incredibly open and honest with us, gave us a lot of time and it's worth a listen. If there's one interview you listen to in this entire podcast, it's got to be this one uh, with uh, Gary Schultz, me and Liz Habib. 
Now, Liz, as you well know, one of the people at the very epicenter of this case is Gary Schultz. He's a former Penn State administrator uh, who ended up uh, pleading guilty to a misdemeanor in this case. And somebody who at one time I was a little concerned about because I, you know, back when I presumed that uh, Jerry Sandusky was guilty and I was considering, is it possible that there was some sort of a cover up here? There were there were some aspects of the Gary Schultz story that that didn't seem right to me or that at least made me go, hmm, I wonder what really happened there. And I even saw his testimony at Graham Spanier's uh, trial, and that made me think a little bit differently about uh, Gary. And then I eventually got to know Gary Schultz fairly well, and and we've even done uh, an interview together that was quite extensive a couple of years ago. And he has graciously agreed to do a formal interview with the both of us uh, for this podcast uh, something that he's never done uh, previously, and so we, we welcome him in now. Uh, Gary, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, John. Uh, Gary, uh, thanks so much for, for taking the time and, and for agreeing that, that this would be the place to, to put your story on the record. There's so many different aspects to this whole incredible uh, fiasco, this ordeal, this tragedy, and your story is a really significant element of it. I, I want to start off in, in, in kind of a, a more global way. If when you were called to the grand jury in early 2011 to talk about uh, something that you didn't even think was was directly related to you and that was something that had happened about a decade earlier that you really didn't have even that strong a recollection of in some aspects of it. If on the way to the grand jury, you had been told how this was all going to turn out, that uh, you know Joe Paterno ended up being fired and Graham Spanier would be essentially fired and that you and Tim Curley would end up uh, going to jail over this and that Jerry Sandusky would be uh, convicted and sent to, to prison for the rest of his life and that Penn State would pay out over $100 million to accusers of Jerry Sandusky and that this would be uh, probably the biggest sports scandal so far of the millennium. How much money would you have bet against that scenario? Oh my gosh, uh, John! There, there would have been. You know that that story is not believable. If somebody would tell you that a story like that, you you would wonder what was wrong with the person. Were they hallucinating? And uh, and and so you would have bet everything. You would have bet your house, and you would have been a hundred percent certain about it. Correct? Yes, absolutely. Because, yes. because at that time, to be clear, I mean, you tell me, what, what was your mindset going into that grand jury about what was actually happening? Well, my mindset was, was substantially uh, uh, molded by a conversation with uh, attorney Cynthia Baldwin, who was at the time general counsel at Penn State. And um, she... Um, briefly called um, the last week in December, that would have been 2010, and told me that um, that we were subpoenaed to testify at uh, a grand jury looking into Jerry Sandusky. And um, she asked that we set up a, a brief meeting um, Shortly after she got back, she was at a bowl game at that time, 
and um, or maybe she was on vacation. I shouldn't say she was at a bowl, but she she was not in her office. I know that. And uh, so anyway, we set up a face to face meeting, which probably lasted only fifteen twenty minutes. And she emphasized uh, a couple of things. First of all, she said quite a bit that led her to believe that this was somewhat of a witch hunt. She said this was at least uh, the second, if not the third, grand jury, and they haven't been able to find anything. Um, and she she was you know skeptical about what they were doing. And then uh, secondly, she said, you know, you're you're. Uh, being asked to go down and report what, whatever you can remember, responding to their questions. Um, keep in mind, that, you know, you're, you're trying to be helpful. Uh, this isn't in any way threatening to you. you. You just tell them what you can remember, and if you can't remember at all, it's understandable because it was quite a number of years ago. So, you know, you can tell them you just don't remember. And so I went down there quite honestly, being fairly relaxed. The only thing I recall that I was somewhat, oh, puzzled about, maybe um, a little uneasy about, is Cynthia indicated that uh, she didn't want me to do anything to refresh my memory. Uh, I told her I thought I might have a file in my office that might have some material that would help me to refresh my memory. And she said, oh, I don't want you to look at, at that file. I don't want you to go looking at emails. And I said, well, you know, maybe if I talk to Tim or Joe, who were both also there to testify, they would be able to help refresh my memory. And she says, I don't want you to talk to anybody. Don't talk to them. And that went so far as to say uh, she didn't want us to drive down to Harrisburg together. So I had to drive down by myself uh, just to assure that we didn't have any conversations between us. I, later, I somewhat uh, I look back at that and somewhat better understand it because you know it it, it, it wouldn't be good for us to be orchestrating our stories. But uh, I still felt uneasy going down there that there was so much of it. I just felt uneasy that I couldn't remember. You said a lot of really important things there, Gary, but I want to make sure we're, we're, we're clear for people that don't know who Cynthia Baldwin is. This is Penn State's counsel at the time. She's prepping you, not even really prepping, just kind of just saying, hey, this is what we're going to do. You're going to testify this grand jury. And she's giving you the in, a clear indication that Jerry Sandusky is being subjected to a witch hunt. Right? That's what you yeah. said. Yeah. And but this woman, this Cynthia Baldwin, ends up effectively flipping on you and Tim Curley, and I, I guess to, uh, to also Graham Spanier, and, and becoming a uh, attempted prosecution witness later on in this case. Correct. That's that's correct. Yes. How mind blowing is that? Mind blowing. Um, let yeah. me also let me also take you back to not threatening to you at all she clearly yes. told you that yes so you had no expectation going in there that this was even about you that you that you were vulnerable at all to anything that's correct and of course you didn't have any semblance of 
any kind of consciousness of guilt because you knew you had done nothing wrong, right? That, that's exactly right. I was completely relaxed about that. That, that. that wasn't an issue. And so how did you feel like the grand jury testimony went? Were any alarm bells starting to go off yet? Yes. Oh, absolutely. That day was a horrible day. Um, we got down there, and uh, prior to um, testifying, I wasn't aware this was going to happen in advance, but uh, we were brought into a conference room. I shouldn't say we, individually. Tim and I were brought into a conference room, and I assume Joe Paterno was, too. He was. Uh, and... Um, Frank Fina, the lead attorney, and uh, Janelle Eshbaugh, who was um, also very key in the case, and some investigators were there. And I went into this with uh, Cynthia Baldwin, my attorney, and um, it started out pretty perfunctory. You know, they, they were explaining how the grand jury works and how the rules of a grand jury are different than a a regular court case, and um, then they started asking me some really, started getting into some really pointed questions about Jerry Sandusky, and it was not very long into that questioning that it, you know, it was very clear that they were focused on that Jerry Sandusky was doing something sexual uh, in the supposed, you know, shower with a child. And I kept indicating to them in my responses that, no, no, I, 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 you know, I never had any idea or any impression that there was anything sexual going on in there. And this went on and on and on. And it got very heated, very hostile. They got angry with me to the point that I think the crescendo was uh, the investigator sitting right next to me banged his fist very hard on the table and said to me, so you don't think a guy sticking his dick up some kid's ass isn't sexual? I'm like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> I, can't, I said, I never heard of such a thing. And, you know, it broke up shortly after that, but I was really, really shaken. I was reeling from that. You and still I knew are. what they were after. And quite frankly, I'm... Uh, yeah, I think of my grand jury testimony, and uh, I, I am almost embarrassed by some of it. I'm I'm unhappy that I didn't do better in that testimony. But um, in what way? I, yeah, what, I was in, awfully shaken. In, in what way, Gary? Do you do you feel embarrassed? What did you do different? What would you have done different? Well, the the section pr- pri- primarily where they, they were again in the grand jury badgering me about. Uh, did I understand that something sexual was going on? And I said no. And again, they got real heated about that. And and I said, this is paraphrasing what I said, and I'll explain why I don't like what I said. I said, well, you know, I thought there was wrestling going on, and, and the worst I could imagine was maybe he would have grabbed the boys' testicles or something like that while they were wrestling. And uh, I'd be honest with you, I never imagined that at the time, and for 10 years following it, the only time 
I came up with that was in response to them being so uh, dogmatic about there was something sexual going on. And so that caused me to just say, well, what could it possibly have been? You know, I knew they were horsing around. They might have been wrestling. What could have happened? You know, and, and that's when I came up with maybe he would have grabbed the kids' testicles while they were wrestling. Gary. What a stupid thing. Gary, what you just said yeah. there is so incredibly significant because the way I'm, I want to make sure I'm interpreting this properly. What you're acknowledging there is that, e, that your testimony was dramatically influenced by the badgering that you had experienced in that conference room. And you're trying your best to think, my gosh, what are these people talking about to the point where you have been effectively manipulated without even knowing it? Is that, is that a fair yes. assessment? Absolutely. Absolutely. That you... would have not been my testimony if it hadn't been for all that badgering that I got prior to the grand jury testimony. And to be clear as to why that happens, and it's perfectly rational, and by the way, it's the exact opposite of a cover-up, you're trying your best to recollect what happened in a way that is, you're trying to be cooperative. You're trying to be helpful. You're trying to say, well, my gosh, if you people are this convinced of this, is it possible that this or that might have happened? And I remember the testicle-grabbing testimony and thinking, what is he doing here? This, 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 yeah. this doesn't – but remember, I'm, I'm actually thinking about this, Gary, at the time from a completely different perspective because I don't believe that there's a cover-up. And I'm thinking, how is this consistent with a cover-up? Why is Gary Schultz testifying that he, he was thinking about the fact that J Jerry might have grabbed the kid's testicles? And, and so, uh, so it's completely inconsistent with a cover-up. And, and you, you and I have never talked about this in, in this fashion before, and I find that – incredibly important because if it happened to you think about how many other times it happened in this case right where where absolutely where including to joe paterno right isn't that possible oh i believe so yeah i think you know i, I this was pure speculation on my part can, can uh, john we, can, and you know i scratch my head and sometimes try to understand how how this could have all happened and um uh, i I imagine Joe uh, went through the same kind of a meeting, although I, w I would also imagine that they would have been far gentler with Joe, just out of deference and respect for him. Um, but I also wouldn't be surprised, and I've heard, um, I don't know if you'd call them rumor or theories or speculation, that Joe might have even called Mike McQuarrie and said, hey, you know, can you refresh my memory? What what what, what was that going on there? You know, but um, but and, you know, and, and Joe, to be clear, to be... you know, Joe didn't help us by uh, basically saying and acknowledging the way it sounded uh, that he he felt something sexual might be going on there. But but just to be clear, and this is more than just speculation because we have a a description of that interview that Joe Paterno did in that conference room before his grand jury testimony. And there is no reference to sex at all, at all, ah. at all. And we have Scott Paterno having tweeted uh, about this years later saying that the first time Joe ever heard about sex 
involving this was from the prosecutors on the way out of that room. That that is that is what Scott has said, and and to hear your story of how you got manipulated into pushing, you know, almost like a gravitational pull of your testimony uh, to to fit their narrative. That's where it doesn't take a leap to say that's where Joe came up with of a sexual nature because it was effectively planted in his mind that that's what Mike had said. And maybe it was refreshed by Mike. Maybe it was through Scott. Maybe it was the prosecutors. Maybe it was all of them. But you have just laid out the blueprint, having experienced yourself, how this could easily happen when prosecutors have a very specific thing they're looking for. And so I find that to be very significant. Lidge, you had a question. You I wanted to know if you were able to talk to Cynthia Baldwin after that, or, you know, like before the conference room into the whatever actual hearing. Like, were you, was there any point you were like, what? what what's going on here? Uh, very, very briefly, um, Cynthia was, Tim and I were both put into the same very small conference room, and Cynthia, after uh I came back to the room, accompanied Tim to go into his interview. And when uh, his interview was over, we essentially moved right you know, forward through the swearing-in process and so forth uh, for the grand jury. So we didn't really have an opportunity to kind of huddle and put our heads together and say, what in the world's going on here? We didn't. We went in, uh, and by the way, Cynthia Baldwin didn't say anything in my interview, and she didn't do anything or say anything during my grand jury testimony either. So I, I might as well have brought in a, you know, a, a dummy uh, because I never got any help during any of that. But you thought she was your lawyer. And 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 you know to be clear, as we're doing this interview just a, a week or so ago, she was severely reprimanded by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court for her dealings in this case, uh, related specifically to her role as your lawyer. Uh, I'm right. sure. I'm, I'm, how did how did that make you feel? By the way, when you saw that story. Well, you know, it's better than nothing. Um, I I, I kind of felt like. From my perspective, uh, it was a light slap on the wrist compared to what she really deserved. But let me just comment on, on her being my lawyer. At the end of, I mentioned earlier that we met for about 15, 20 minutes a week before we went down to the grand jury. And at the toward the end of that meeting, Cynthia said, now, when you go, you're entitled to be accompanied by your attorney. And she said, uh, you have every right to go hire your own attorney, but I have talked with you and, and Tim and Joe, and I feel comfortable I can represent you and, and, and the other two as well. She said she didn't see any conflict, and she could represent me. And so my response to her was, well, I wouldn't know what other attorney to go get anyway. So I said, if you're comfortable with it, then yeah. You know, you can be my attorney. So I very clearly was thinking that she was my attorney based on that mm-hmm. conversation. So you're, you're you're getting the alarm bells going off during this berating by investigators and by uh, 
of the uh, prosecutors and you're, you're not happy with how the grand jury testimony goes, but uh, I'm assuming you don't fully realize uh, just what's going on here and, and how dire this circumstance is and how different it is than what you thought was happening until November of 2011. Is, is that accurate? And can you take us through, through what transpires yeah. then? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. I mean, I, I got the very clear understanding that they were hellbent going after Jerry Sandusky. Uh, no question about that. But I had no inkling that I might be in jeopardy. No inkling. And so, um, as, you know, roughly 10, 10 or 11 months, basically 10 months between the grand jury testimony and early November when the presentment was uh, issued, I had no idea that uh, anything was going to be coming down on me or Tim. And to be clear, you tell me, at no point are you thinking that Jerry Sandusky is actually a, a pedophile that, that somehow had roamed free at Penn State during your tenure there for all these years without anyone knowing about it. That, that, that's not something that you had ever thought was, was reality, was it? No, no, not at all. You know, obviously I was bewildered when, you know, I became aware of what they were seemingly accusing Jerry of, but, but my gosh, I never had any inkling, never even, you know, a second thought about that. Never even occurred to you? No, no. And, and Jerry, Jerry was a, a bit of an odd character, and he's a clown, uh, he loved children. He set up this wonderful Second Mile Foundation and spent an incredible amount of his personal time, his wealth, his emotional, you know, uh, energy on that uh, uh, on that uh, charity, and and was widely recognized uh, in the community and and. Uh, you know, highly regarded because of that. And I, I was, I was one of those, you know, I just admired him, what he was doing. Uh, he had a board that was all, all the prominent people in state college, you could say, seemed to be on that board or many of them for sure. So it was a really credible organization. And and Jerry was riding high, uh, doing great work and being lauded for all the stuff that he was doing never would have thought that he could have possibly been a pedophile. And so the the crap hits the fan in November 2011. You're not even you're away. You're on you're on vacation and and you get uh, told um that uh you're going to be indicted. Uh, I'll, I'll, I assume along with Jerry Sandusky. Uh, tell us about what those few days, those crazy days in November were like for Gary Schultz. Well, yeah, they surely were crazy. Uh, one of those things that you would never imagine in your worst nightmares. Um, I actually uh, had uh, a trip to Disney World with my wife and daughter and her family, um, and and we were down there. Um, I remember um, uh, being called in the afternoon while I was sitting at uh, Blizzard Beach or something like that. I know it was a water park. 
and asked whether I could um, be on a phone call meeting that evening. And um, I, I said I could. We, you know, we were going to rearrange our dinner plan so that I could do this. So I got on this phone call at night in the evening, and um, the phone call included uh, Graham Spanier, President Spanier, Cynthia Baldwin. Uh, I believe Tim Curley was physically there. Those three, I think, were at the president's house, and I, of course, was on the phone. And it was in that phone call that uh, Cynthia Baldwin informed Tim and I that she had some inside contacts at the attorney general's office that tipped her off that we were going to be charged uh, with a felony. I think she, she knew what they were. I'm not 100% recalling that, but a felony perjury and a uh, misdemeanor failure to report in this presentment. And I damn near fell, uh, you know, on the floor. I, I just could not believe something like that was happening. I, uh, I mean, it's hard to explain how something like that hits you. So that's how I found out about it. And um, uh, at the conclusion of that meeting, I, I said I would be coming back on Saturday. Uh, and um, it was decided that we were going to get together on Sunday at uh, the president's house. And Cynthia was going to do some work in trying to identify some attorneys that Tim and I would would have to represent us as we went forward. And so we had the meeting in uh, Schreier House that Sunday, and I forget what day. It might have been Monday or Tuesday. The presentment actually did come out. And uh, adding more wood to the fire, I mean, that presentment, when I read it, I was like flabbergasted. Unbelievable. Uh, my world was, I, I, I can't even explain how upside down I was at that time. Which part of the presentment, uh, I, I'm assuming it must have been the description that Mike McCreary uh, supposedly gave of what happened uh, when J he saw Jerry Sandusky and a boy uh, in a shower. That, I'm assuming that was the most shocking part that didn't make any sense to you? Well, uh, I, you know. I don't know. I, I never knew and, and admittedly still don't know much about presentments and, and how things happen after a grand jury and everything. But just the whole tone and the style that that presentment was written, I, I, I thought was was way out of line. I mean, it, it, it wasn't written in a way that was... You know, like Joe Fry, the Friday, just the facts, man. You know, just laying something out. It was inflammatory. It was it was sensationalized, and in fact, there were aspects of it that I felt were were just flat out wrong. Um, and and the one that I always pick on that I can remember, because I haven't read this presentment <laughs> probably. Right. You know, Understood. for many, many years now. I, I so, but if I, if I read it again, I could be more clear. I'm sure. But the one thing that sticks in my mind is there's a sentence along the lines of Mike McQuarrie, you know, entered the shower and observed Jerry Sandusky having anal sex with a child, a ten-year-old boy, or whatever. 
And I thought, holy smokes, I'm reading that. And then two sentences later, it says, and Mike McQuarrie went to Joe Paterno and told him what he saw. Mm -hmm. And I know that's not right. There is no way that Mike McQuarrie went to Joe Paterno and said he saw Jerry having anal sex. No way. But that's what that presentment, if anybody, you know, reasonably read it and interpreted it, they get that impression. Why do you think and there's no wrong. way? Why do you think there's no way that's what happened? Well, Liz, when, when we were informed, Joe indicated, he, he told Tim that Mike had come, and, and the description of what Mike told Joe, that Joe relayed to to Tim. Now, this may have been Joe's interpretation, but Joe said that he saw Jerry in the shower horsing around with a kid. Now, whether Mike used the term horsing around, I don't know, but there's no way that Joe Paterno would have said he saw him horsing around with a kid if Mike would have told him that he was having anal sex with a child. My God, the reaction would have been completely different. Not to mention, I mean, we would have been, we've been on the phone with the police, you know, as soon as we hung up. What did you think of that? Uh, um, the allegation that that McQuarrie, and I'm going to call it an allegation, what McQuarrie says he did, that the first person he went to, well, it wasn't the first person, it was his dad and his dad's friend, but that he went to Joe Paterno, that that was who he chose to go to in that case, as opposed to the police. Yeah. Well, when we heard the report that he was horsing around in the shower. Uh, I didn't necessarily think that was a matter that needed to go to the police either. I mean, um, and and the, probably the main reason that I would have reacted that way is, Liz, I don't know if you're aware of it, but but John is. Uh, in I knew a few years earlier. It turns out it was 1998. Um, Jerry was investigated uh, by uh, the Department of Welfare, Child Services, those kinds of agencies, because a mother uh, of a young second-mile child was concerned after he went with Jerry on, you know, some kind of a, an outing to the football locker room, and supposedly they showered. And... So we, this, this didn't come to Penn State. This mother went directly to the police with the concern that she felt that something more might have been going on there. And the police, as well as the Department of Welfare, did a, an investigation that went on for more than a month. And it was all done completely independently of Penn State. But at the end, the conclusion was, okay, Jerry showered with this young boy, uh, but there were no charges because, you know, it's not illegal to shower with a young boy. Now, how much Jerry really got out of this, I, I question, but it was very clear to those of us who were concerned about this, this investigation and so forth, uh, at the end... Jerry was told, showering with young boys by yourself in a locker room is a really bad idea. You, sh you need to stop this. 
And so when I when I heard a report that he was showering three years later with a young boy, honest to goodness, I said, son of a bitch, he didn't learn his lesson. I was I was PO'd that he, he would do that again. So I wasn't happy at all with Jerry to hear about this report. He was in the shower with a boy. But but, but I knew it wasn't illegal. But and 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 to, I had no reason to suspect anything more than showering was going on. In fact, Gary, in a in a weird way, I mean, everything about this case is upside down and opposite of the perception. 1998 is 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 perceived by the media as somehow the smoking gun that this was all a cover up at Penn State. When in reality, because you knew the details and you knew how it had been adjudicated, in a weird way. It probably uh, had had the impact, correct me if I'm wrong, of you saying, oh, wait a minute, we've been through this before. We know what this is and what it isn't. I can't believe he's doing it again, but we got to deal with it. Is that is that a fair assessment? Uh, uh, absolutely accurate. Yeah. yeah. So, so in a weird way, in a weird way, you guys were handicapped by 1998 because it felt exactly like the same thing had already been investigated. And the D.A. said unfounded. So you have no reason at all to be suspicious of criminal activity. You're just suspicious of why the hell won't Jerry get this through his thick head that this is a bad idea. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. And so, and, and just go going back to the Joe Paterno thing for a second about, uh, about how, you know, the whisper down the lane and, and who told uh, who what. It's also incredibly important to remind our listeners, you yourself had spoken to Mike McQuarrie not long after Mike McQuarrie had spoken to Joe Paterno. And just to be 100% clear, you know, you had a good recollection of that conversation and there was nothing remotely consistent with Mike McQuarrie having said he is, he witnessed a sexual assault in a shower, right? Absolutely. And uh, Tim and I both had talked about it because Tim and I met with uh, McQuarrie together Uh he told us about the incident. None of Tim, neither Tim nor I, had any inkling that it was anything more than horsing around in the shower. And um, you know, it, it, it just never dawned on us. All right, so you get indicted and uh, and charged. And this has a, an enormous impact, obviously, on your life, uh, but also on your role in the case. And you and I have talked a lot about uh, how you know, my thinking on, on what was really going on here has evolved. And I think your thinking has also evolved about what was really going on here. What did you think was happening at the time with regard to why the focus was on you and Tim and charging you and where are you now about what that motivation to go after you really was? Well, first of all, I, at the time I was completely bewildered. Um, being charged with perjury, I, I, I testified in the grand jury, although in, in some ways clumsy and so forth, but completely truthfully. There was never anything that I said during that testimony that was perjurious. Uh, I couldn't understand how in the hell they would have come up with that. Uh, I got the impression that, you know, they were stretching awfully hard 
to try to to nail us, but I couldn't understand why. And have you, in in all these years later, do you think you have an understanding about what was really the motivation behind going after you and Tim? Well, I mean, on, on a you know purely speculative basis, but I think it's common sense. As I, I you know, I'm able to stand back and get a little bit of distance instead of being like in the eye of a, of a tornado. Um, I think there's possibly one or, or two reasons that uh, they might have wanted to pursue it the way they did. Uh, number one, uh, they pretty much took us out of the picture in terms of testifying at Jerry's trial. Once we were charged, there's no way we were going to provide any testimony. It came up briefly between me and my attorney because I felt like I, you know, I have knowledge that that could fill in important information, and he said, "Absolutely not. You're not testifying." And it was it was over and done real quick. We we just weren't going to do that. So they took us out of any possibility of testifying at Jerry's trial. And then secondly, I I had reasons to think that um, they were upset with Penn State, upset with Graham Spanier, um, and that they might have this might have been somewhat of a retribution, uh, a getting back at us kind of thing. Who, who's they? Tom Corbett was. There you go. I'm sorry. Yeah, who's they? They were upset. They. You were just saying Tom Corbett. Yeah, yeah. So um, Tom Corbett, when the whole Jerry Sandusky investigation began, was the attorney general. And he ran for governor, and uh, there were um, he, he's on the Republican ticket. And his opponent was a uh, Democrat out of Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh area anyway. I think he was actually Allegheny County um, uh, manager type person. But anyway, the, he ran on the Democratic ticket, and here's just coincidence that I look back at and say, you know, this is the kind of thing that bites you innocently. Uh, the two of of the candidates, well, let me just say this, we are hell-bent, extraordinarily sensitive at Penn State in not taking sides in a gubernatorial election. We get, you know, in the, in the ball, several hundred million dollars of appropriation from the state. Mm-hmm. We have lots of reasons to just make sure that we don't uh, get involved in state politics. So, on a on a fall football game, how this happened, I I don't know. But the two candidates were invited to the same game, and. Um, Tom Corbett and Dan Honorato, his, his opponent, were there. Dan is um, an alum of Penn State. And my understanding is I heard this uh, from some folks that are in our government affairs uh, area, is that Tom Corbett was extremely upset because he observed uh, Graham Spanier uh, talking with Dan Honorato in a way that was uh, seemingly more friendly, more congenial than conversations that he had with President Spanier. And he was, he was not happy at all about that. 
and he let uh, he let us know that. But then, secondly, he gets elected, and the first thing he does in in his office is, I shouldn't say the first, but one of the early things he does is he recommends the budget for the following fiscal year. And lo and behold, the budget that he recommends includes a 50% cut to Penn State and others that are publicly supported in the Commonwealth. 50%? That's a gigantic cut. What was going Uh, on? That's huge. 50%. I mean, how could you operate at 50%? You have to lay a bunch of people off. Oh, well, yeah, lots of people. 50%. Because that would have been the equivalent of about $150 million of of a cut. Okay, so So, you... So Graham Spanier, who tended to be among the the presidents of the public universities, uh, tended to be the quasi-unofficial leader in many respects. He, He was extremely outspoken and critical of Governor Corbett. For proposing such a cut, and I remember reading, and he's he's doing this very publicly. I remember reading it in the local newspaper when this happened. And of course, I'm retired, so I'm here at my house with my wife. And I said, "Oh my God, I can't believe that Graham's saying this stuff publicly." But it was extraordinarily aggressive in attacking uh, Corbett. And I remember him saying something along the lines of that Abe Lincoln must be rolling over in his grave. And the reference to that is, of course, Abe Lincoln set up the land-grant university system in uh, in the United States, and Penn State's a land-grant, so that's how Graham uh, referred to uh, Abe Lincoln um, as an advocate for um, land-grant universities. So what you're doing, though... So I, I was sure that that would have extremely irritated Corbett. So for those two reasons, I think I had in, in mind that Corbett was probably out to get us. And I think both of those are valid. Uh, But let's deal with the one more directly involving uh, the Jerry Sandusky element of this case. Because at this point, the only way that that we're really going to understand or the public's ever really going to understand what did and did not happen here is if we get to the heart of the Jerry Sandusky matter. And and what and my belief that the Jerry Sandusky is, is not actually a pedophile and I don't believe there's any any evidence that he is, and we'll get to your view on that shortly. But but in order to to get to the bottom line of that whole situation, I think your role is incredibly key. And you've already referenced it that the prosecution gets an enormous benefit by sidelining you and Tim Curley, by effectively decapitating your credibility. And by making sure, especially when you're charged with perjury, right, there's no way any lawyer is going to let you get on the stand when you've already been charged with perjury because anything you say, even if it's intending to be truthful, can be parsed in a way that might be able to further the perjury case, right? So so there, there's they know they are taking away two witnesses that could be very helpful to Jerry Sandusky because your testimony strikes at the heart of Mike McQuarrie's credibility, correct? Uh, Exactly. And so you believe that if you had not been indicted, in fact, you said that you even suggested this to your lawyer, if you had not been indicted, if you had not been in any jeopardy, you you believe that you would have been someone who would have provided important testimony on behalf of Jerry Sandusky's defense. Absolutely. 
because you're positive that Mike McQuarrie never said anything close to what he was claiming 10 years later, correct? That's correct. And this is obviously an exceedingly difficult thing to prove, but your role in this case comes as close as anybody possibly could. And it's not just because of your recollection and Tim's recollection and what the record says about what Mike McQuarrie claimed at the time. It's about when this episode actually happened and when it didn't happen. And you are the key to unlocking this mystery. So I want to go through with you just to make it very clear why you and I are now of the belief that the date is still dramatically wrong. So let's start at the beginning of this. When the presentment comes out, and it's claimed by Mike and the prosecution that this occurs on March 1st of 2002. Now, this is way removed for you from an event that, that was not that important. You're a very, very busy guy. You're an important guy. You're dealing with significant issues all the time. I, I'm sure you didn't have a very strong recollection of exactly when this happened. But did that, did that date raise any alarm bells to you? Did it feel correct? Did it not feel correct? What was your, what was your assessment of that date at the time? Well, I, I had no uh, reaction to it. I, I mean, it, I took it as, yeah, that's, you know, fine. That's when it must have been. I, I had no re- recollection of when it occurred, other than I knew it was quite a while earlier. All right. And so as this, as the, the crap hits the fan, and now, of course, you're starting to dig deep into your archives to find out, okay, what, what actually happened here? What evidence is there? And you uh, you come across something that, much like everything else in this case, is perceived exactly the opposite of the way that it should. In fact, by me, I even perceived it incorrectly. Even I bought in for a short period of time that there was somehow this secret Sandusky file that uh, you were that you were keeping, uh, and that uh, and that this uh, eventually gets found by the prosecution. Well, I would later learn that none of that is accurate. Tell us about the so-called secret Sandusky file, uh, uh, what was in there, and how you were the one that uh, ended up uh, providing it uh, to the prosecution. Well, uh, I, uh, as a senior VP at Penn State, uh, would uh, get reports from either auditing or uh, university police occasionally of employee misconduct. And I had a uh, locked file drawer in my office, not out in the general office files, but in my office, of uh, a drawer of files that we just called employee misconduct. And uh, in that drawer, there was a file for Jerry Sandusky because of both the 98 and the 2001 uh, reports of him showering with kids, um, I had that file in there. And I included in that file some notes, some emails, and so forth um, that were germane to those two incidents. That file remained in in my office. Um, I retired in 2009. And, in fact, I was asked at the uh, grand jury if I had any files or any information, and my response was along the lines of, I don't have anything with me, but I might have a file in my office. I know I did at one time, and uh, but I might have disposed of it when I retired. I wasn't sure. 
so you know at the grand jury i already acknowledge there was a file and, and it may still be there it may not but it may be there and as i mentioned before uh when uh i was interviewed prior to the or i met with cynthia baldwin prior to the grand jury i mentioned to her uh, that i might have a file up uh, my office former office was upstairs and i said i might have a file up in my office and you know that would be helpful to review to refresh my memory. So she was told as well, and of course she heard it again in the grand jury that there's a file, or might be a file. So there, you know, the idea that this was secret is not true at all. Uh, people in my office who worked closely with me had access to that file. In fact, I didn't even have a key to open it. If I wanted to go in, I had to go to my administrative assistant and ask her to give me the key so I could open the file. And uh, she would post things to the file. Uh, so the file was never a secret file. It was just one that common sense would tell you it was a confidential file. But, but still, it's, it, it still is one of those things. You were retired, and there was still some secret place with a secret key where there was a file? It just really does sound a little out there, though, Gary. Well, it, you know, if you would go in that file, Liz, you would have found probably uh, in the neighborhood of several dozen files in there. Uh, I found out later that I didn't destroy any of them. I, I you know, they all remained there when I left and my successor, um, you know, took over. And they were there um, as just, you know, who who knows what the future may bring. Those files were there. <laughs> to okay. essentially record and document the reports, the decision-making process, and so forth. Okay, so I For can... For what I reason, can... who knows? So, but that initial, very initial meeting with Cynthia Baldwin, take just, mm-hmm. I know you already said this, but I just, in light of everything else you've said, tell us again what it was she said, okay, you have to go to this grand jury for, this is what's going on. What? How did she say it? Uh, there, yeah, there was a grand jury investigating Jerry Sandusky, um, and she said that there was a report or, or some indication that there were uh, showering incidents at Penn State, and I was asked to come and testify to um, whatever I could recall about those two incidences. And you knew, you knew there were incidences because you had this file that maybe you didn't see, but you knew before you went there were these incidents, right? That's what you've told us. You, you, had, oh, a, you, had, a re- you had an independent no, I recollection. Remembered, I remembered the incidences. Right, that too, uh, and you I had notes. I didn't remember all the details that would have been... Okay, just to, just to make uh, it clear. Okay, so, so Gary, so this, so you, this, the file, you, you now research and you, and you get the materials and you hand them over... I believe to your lawyer first, and then you guys, you you give them to the prosecution, correct? Well, that's correct, John. And, and you know, we kind of skipped over. I, I got the file from my administrative assistant who just happened to be going through the file, and she saw the Sandusky file in there, and uh, she was she came to my house at least twice after I was fired. Um, and, um, and she brought this file to me and handed it to me. And she said, I found this and I wanted to give it to you because I thought it might be helpful. And I looked at it and I was like, oh my God, 
here is the Sandusky file. I was so shaken when she handed it to me, I, uh, I didn't even look at it. But you, uh, but you but did hand it over. You handed it over, correct? Yeah. Coincidentally, I was meeting with my attorney the following day in Pittsburgh. I took that file with me, and I gave it to him the following day. And you never looked at it still? You still hadn't looked in it? No. I, I did later that evening, Liz. I did peek at it. I didn't go through the whole thing, but I did take a look. It just kind of, I got an idea of what was in there, and honestly, uh, I, I just wasn't in a, in a state of mind that I could go through that file. But it was to be too shocking. Yeah. To, but to be clear, you didn't burn it. No, no. <laughs> you, you, and, and your attorney didn't burn it, uh, and, and, you, and the attorney handed it over to the prosecution, correct? That's correct. Okay. You didn't take anything out of it. You didn't, or did you? No. No, no. I'm just, I'm just no. asking to see, you know. I cl- right. Gary, you're clearly very still emotionally wh- wherever you are with this whole thing because when you talk to us about certain days, your voice changes. Well, yeah. it's a big impact yeah. on it. It's destroyed his life. Yeah. I mean, it's it's I mean, it's yeah. destroyed a lot of people's lives and uh and so let's talk Gary about uh what was in the file and why that's so significant to figuring out when this happened because what what you and it's again i keep going back to this everything's the opposite of what it appears to be in that file i believe is enough information to blow up the entire prosecution case and it's particularly interesting that these emails play an incredibly important role in some of the details of the prosecution case but they're not presented at Jerry Sandusky's trial. And I want to get into that a little bit more uh, later on. But let's talk about the key parts of the when here. In that file, we learn through emails uh, the, a, a bunch of incredibly important dates, one of which is we know Mike McQuarrie goes to see Joe Paterno on the morning of February 10th, 2001, not... March 2nd of 2002, which would have been the the original version of events in the presentment. That should have been a, a bombshell, a massive earthquake. And instead, the prosecution kind of quietly announces uh, several months after this story breaks and just before Jerry Sandusky's trial, oh, by the way, uh, yeah, uh, we've changed the date of the McQuarrie episode. It's no longer March 1st, 2002. It's now, it's got to be February 9th. It's got to be the night of February 9th because we know there was so much urgency that Joe, he, he went to go see Joe Paterno the next day. So it's so facto. If he saw Joe Paterno on the morning of the 10th, he must have seen Jerry Sandusky in the shower with a boy the night of February 9th. And so now we have a new date. Now, did the did the realization, Gary, that Mike McQuarrie had completely blown the date, the month, and the year of this episode, did that raise any alarm bells for you personally about the credibility of this story? Well, you know, it, it was one of the, the key things the, the file hit me with is, is, you know, they had the wrong date without any question because the, the emails, the contemporaneous notes were all in that time frame of uh, February 10, 2001. Uh, and I guess my, my reaction was more like, how could this be if they've spent all these months investigating? How could it be that they were that wrong? But I came to accept that a lot of this stuff didn't make any sense. But I, I was just somewhat 
uh, baffled at how an investigation of this magnitude would have gone on for this amount of time, and they still didn't have the date right. And it's not even close. It's the, the date's wrong, the month's wrong, the year is wrong, and, and, and that is incredibly significant. And, and as you now know, and, and Liz now knows, uh, I strongly believe and believe we have proven, and other people believe we have proven, that they still have the wrong date. And your, your, um, your documentation and your recollections are a key component in proving that February 9th is not the correct date. And let's just go through a couple of the key points. Just in, in general terms, one of the, uh, of the very famous things about Mike McQuarrie's original version of events was that when he witnessed this, that it was a very quiet day or night on campus. It was a very quiet night on campus. No one was around and that therefore, in theory, Jerry Sandusky had an expectation that, uh, you know, he could get away with this without anyone barging in in the, in the last building. Well, uh, unfortunately, far too late, uh, we've learned a lot about the night that this allegedly occurred. Uh, one is that there was a major sold-out rock concert right across the street from the Lash building. The second is that there was a, a hockey game going on at exactly the time in which this uh, event, episode allegedly occurred in that exact building. As someone who is intimately familiar with the those uh, what those set of circumstances would have meant about that area uh, of the campus, uh, how inconsistent is is that with the notion that this was a quiet night on campus? Yeah, well, it's totally inconsistent. Uh, the rock concert, uh, you know, if it was sold out, which I believe it was, or something close to it, would have probably had in the neighborhood of uh, ten to twelve thousand people in a major arena immediately across the street from the Lash football locker room. And uh, when a when a big event is going on over there, you know you can imagine uh, the, the you know the crowds, the parking, uh, the Bryce Jordan Center has all kinds of special lights that you know are lighting up the sky and so forth, and that's happening literally you know an eighth of a mile away. Uh, the the hockey game in the in the, the connected building um, would have drawn about. A thousand fans. It's a small ice rink and had about a thousand fans. But this section of of campus, particularly around the locker room and the uh, ice hockey arena, is very uh, has very minimal parking. So parking in in and around that locker room because of the hockey game primarily because the 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 concert venue had a whole bunch of parking. Uh, that would have been available to it. But the, the hockey game would have been the one that, from a parking point of view, would have cluttered up all the parking in that particular area of campus. Anybody arriving on campus that night would have never, ever characterized it as a quiet time on campus. It was just the opposite. So that brings, at the very least, into great question, February 9th, uh, being the date that Mike McQuarrie witnessed this, and and if that was it, you know that would raise questions and and concerns, but that's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to this issue of the date. As I have learned, unfortunately, belatedly, and you're a big key to understanding uh, how and why that is, because 
as you are well aware, and our, our listeners at this point are aware, Mike McQuarrie's story is that he goes and tells his dad, John McQuarrie, and his dad's friend, I guess his boss, Dr. John Dranoff, he goes and tells him supposedly that night about what he witnessed. And Dranov asks him three times whether or not he saw some sort of a sex act, according to Dranov's testimony. And McQuir- Mike McQuarrie says to him three times, no, he did not. And they decide, OK, you're going to go uh, see Joe Paterno. But we now know that both John McQuarrie and John Dranov have testified, actually on multiple occasions, about a meeting they had with you. And the meeting they had with you was not supposed to be about Jerry Sandusky and Mike McQuarrie. It was on another matter involving Penn State University. But that at the end of that meeting, they took you aside and they said, hey, uh, Gary, uh, what's going on with uh, with Jerry Sandusky? And uh, wh- what about, uh, is, can we get an update on, on Mike's uh story that he he brought to you uh, having witnessed this event that that upset him greatly and you have been able to figure out uh, to within a couple of days when that meeting took place and you've been able to narrow it down you can't narrow it down to the exact day because you don't have all of your documentation but through various sources you've been able to figure out that the that this meeting with with John McQuarrie and John Dranoff had to have happened in a in a, about a two or three day period in in late February of two thousand one uh, is is I just can can you confirm for me that that's correct and can you give us a little sense of how you've been able to conclude that? Yeah, that is correct. Um, uh, as you indicated, there was a, a regular business related meeting that I had, and I was invited afterwards to just stop by uh, John McQuarrie's office, and the, the three of us, Dranoff and McQuarrie and I, in that office, they asked, uh, what's the status of this report that Mike made of Jerry showering with this kid? And I recall saying to them it was something that was uh, under investigation. Um, now, what, in terms of trying to determine when this meeting might have occurred, it, it's relatively significant to know that on the 26th of February, I actually uh, had a series of things that took me out of the office essentially until the 19th of March. Uh, I had uh, appropriation hearings in Harrisburg. I went on a uh, two-week vacation. I think it was the first time I ever took two consecutive weeks to visit my former boss and uh, another work colleague who retired, and they were both down in Florida, and they wanted me to come down and see them. And uh, when I returned from that, um, I actually had to go to Hershey uh, to Penn State Board of Trustees meetings. So all of that took me out of the office until the, the week of the 19th of March. So the fact that I was able, or I, I recall clearly telling them that it was under investigation, tells me that I met with them before I left. Because if I met with them later in March when I was back in the office, or even later than that, 
I wouldn't have been telling them that it was under investigation. And I did have a, a, a you know, a, a, an idea that it was shortly after all of this initially broke. Um, so here's the other factor. Um, I think from a variety of, of uh, angles, McCreary's own testimony being one of them, I think I met with um, Tim Curley and Mike McQuarrie sometime the week of the 19th, early in that week, like the 19th or the 20th. And I know I met with Mike before I met with Dranoff and McQuarrie, Mike's dad. And so my, just looking at how this all unfolded, if we met with Mike on Monday or Tuesday, I and I left the following Monday on this extended period out of the office, I believe I must have met with McQuarrie and Dranoff sometime later the week of the 19th, which would be somewhere between the 21st and 23rd. All right. Now, that, that seems like mundane detail, but that's incredibly important, Liz, because if that meeting occurs on the 21st, 22nd, or 23rd, and, and let's be clear about why you know that, because the, that the 23rd is a Friday, the 26th is a Monday, you're gone for essentially three weeks. Uh, and by the time you get back in the office, this story is over. Right, it's over. It's done. You've already dealt with it, so there, it would have made absolutely no sense uh, for you to have told uh, John McQuarrie and John Dranoff, "Hey, uh, we're we're investigating uh, this. Hold on." Which, by the way, is everyone's testimony. It's your testimony. It's McQuarrie's testimony. It's Dranoff's testimony. So everyone's in agreement that this thing was not concluded, right? So we know. So we know it has to be before the twenty sixth, because the twenty fourth and twenty fifth is a weekend. Uh, then it's logically the twenty first, twenty second, twenty third. You know, if you split the difference, the twenty second seems like a logical day. Uh, that's a Thursday. It's a couple days after you meet with with uh, John, with Mike McQuarrie and Tim Curley. And so, why is that significant? Let's just, for the sake of argument, say it's the twenty second. The 22nd is 12 days, 12 days after Mike McQuarrie has gone to go see Joe Paterno, which, by the way, would fit with, uh, you know, the normal progression of events. Right. I mean, that that makes that makes that makes sense to you. Right. As far as how these things would evolve. Right. So, exactly. so, so, you know, because, uh, you know, you, you, this takes time, you know, McQuarrie goes to Paterno, Paterno passes up the food chain. You guys schedule a meeting with Mike McQuarrie, by the way, obviously there wasn't huge ur- urgency to schedule the meeting with McQuarrie because it takes a week, right. To schedule that. So it's not as if Mike's hair's on fire. Oh my gosh, we've got a pedophile on our, on our hands. Uh, we need to stop this. Is that, is that, is that, I mean, is that a fair assessment of the urgency level? Well, in reality, uh, John, um, there's there's two things going on. Number one, it, it was Tim's idea that we should meet with Mike. Mike didn't request the meeting. So Tim asked me to go with him to meet with Mike McQuarrie. And, of course, I, I was willing to do that. However, the week of um, the 12th, Actually, the dates would be the 14th through the 16th. I was actually at the University of Iowa doing an external review. Okay, so you weren't even in town. Okay. I wasn't even in town, and uh, I got back in town late Friday night, the 16th. So the 19th or 20th would have been the soonest we could have gotten. Got it. Okay, so... 
And, and, and let's be clear, you know, there's a lot of things going on here as far as narrative. And the prosecution loves this idea of you guys slow walking this, right? That this that you guys took so much time on this that that, that John McQuarrie and, and, and John Dranoff are, are begging for an update. Why aren't you doing anything, right? That's the narrative that they're using, correct? Yeah. Right. Okay. So, but there's no evidence that that's the case. And in fact, what we're about to learn is exactly the opposite. So, so let's presume it's probably uh, February 22nd when you have that conversation with John McQuarrie and John Dranoff. What we now know is that both John McQuarrie and Dr. Dranoff have testified under oath in slightly different fashion, but in a, in a way that is very consistent that that meeting took place months, months after they heard Mike tell them their story. And remember, the prosecution's version is Mike told them their, their story the night of February 9th. That's why he goes to see Joe Paterno the morning, Saturday morning, the 10th. And so their their testimony, to be clear, John McQuarrie says at Jerry Sandusky's trial, a couple of months. John Dranoff has said one to three months, or up to three months, I believe is the exact phrase, up to three months later. So you got a couple of months, up to three months later. That is their independent recollection under oath as to how long it took from the time in which they heard Mike's story and the time they speak to you. Now, that's not your consistent. That's not consistent with your recollection, is it, Gary? No, no. It's and it, it and so in other words, just from your general gist of your your memory, that the couple of months thing doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense with regard to your diary. It doesn't make any sense with regard to way things would operate. That it would take this long. So so to you, the couple of months thing, the up to three months thing, makes absolutely no sense whatsoever and it's completely inconsistent with 12 days or 13 days because that's because that's what we're now led to believe where we now know that it was at most 12 or 13 days from the time that that mike tells his dad and dr dranov what happened and he uh, then they meet with you to get an update that's not consistent with a couple of months or up to three months we know that. That's obvious. Uh, I mean, 12 days is not the same as two or three months. However, if, right. however, if we go backwards, if we subtract two or three months from February uh, 22nd, now we're into December. And I believe that we have put together a date, December 29th, 2000, that fits perfectly with everything we know. And uh, we've we've gone into great detail about how this fits with Jerry Sandusky's recollection. This fits with uh, uh, Jerry Sandusky, the person that he he spoke to on the phone on the way back from a book signing the day of December 29, 2000. Uh, this fits with a newspaper article about Jerry Sandusky learning about having lost out on the Virginia head coaching job uh, on the, the morning after December 29, 2000. It fits with the fact, most important, that how quiet would campus have been on December 29, 2000, Gary? Uh, it would have been deadly quiet. Uh, this, this is, you know, obviously between Christmas and New Year's, and uh, uh, we didn't go to a bowl game that year, so, you know, Lash Building would have been, you know, completely quiet and vacant. 
um, it, it would have been quiet, and that would fit the characterization that Mike uh, presented as far as uh, the evening of the incident. And you mentioned not going to a bowl game that year, and Liz will be able to confirm this, I'm sure. I mean, this is an important part of people's recollection in the timeline. Penn State's season ended in November that year. In November, which was highly unusual. Highly. I mean, Penn State was used to having their season end late December or ideally on, on January 1st. They, they, were, had a ter- right. they had a terrible year that year. And uh, so there's no bowl game. There's nothing for Mike McQuarrie to do. He's hanging around. I think that there's a much better chance that Mike McQuarrie on December 29th, 2000, was watching a Peach Bowl game that happened to end at exactly the right time for him to go over to the Lash Building than there is that on February 9th of 2001, he's watching the movie Rudy, which is his current story, and in the middle of the movie, uh, he decides to be inspired and go over to the last building and misidentifies uh, how quiet things were that night. So that fits with December 29th of 2000. And I also think that the fact that the season ended early has a major impact on everybody's sense of time right Gary do you see where I'm going with that 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 we're, we're not used to uh, the season already being over for over a month by this time period does that make sense yeah yeah I mean it, it certainly would have been an unusual uh, set of circumstances because Penn State virtually you know every year gets invited to a season ending bowl right yeah it's significant uh, it very unusual to be shut down that early and everything be just stop and and let me just put one more point on this liz and you you'll understand this very well as a sportscaster so not only is mike have nothing to do on december 29 2000 and his campus is as quiet as it gets but what was going on in february of that year on february 7th and this I, i even i don't emphasize this enough on february 7th of that year two days before this allegedly happens It's National Signing Day for college football, which would have been a huge event in graduate assistant Mike McQuarrie's life and something he would have used as a marker. Oh, my gosh, this week was so busy. We were were, it was National Signing Day on Wednesday. And then uh, at this point, everyone's thinking about jobs. Jobs are opening, which is a huge deal for a graduate assistant. And he doesn't ever mention the fact that that week was National Signing Day, which would have been a marker for him. And what I believe really happens here, and Gary, I want to get your impressions of this, it's a hell of a coincidence that on the day before the prosecution has Mike McQuarrie witnessing Jerry Sandusky uh, seeing a boy in the shower, the job that Mike McQuarrie wanted opens up. Kenny Jackson goes from the, from the Penn State Nittany Lions to the Pittsburgh Steelers. That job is open Mike McCreary, as a graduate assistant, desperately wants and needs a job. He even testifies that when he calls Joe Paterno uh, that Saturday morning, Joe Paterno tells him, if this is about a job, don't bother coming over. I don't have one for you. What do you make, Gary, uh, of this remarkable coincidence that the uh, that a job opens up the day before? Mike claims this about what Joe says. Sue Paterno has told me specifically and emphatically and she was there that day, that didn't happen. And then Mike not only doesn't get the job, which would have been consistent with a cover-up, but three years later, he gets that very same job when it reopens. What do you make of all that? Well, you know, I, I don't know. Um, I speculate that 
that uh, the the uh, fact that uh, the coaching position opened up gave Mike a reason to want to. It, it may have reminded them he needed to go talk to Joe anyway because you know back to your other idea that if it was uh, the 29th of December that the incident actually occurred and his father and, and John uh, Dranoff advised him to go tell Joe Paterno about it. And here he is somewhere in, in the vicinity of the 9th of February. He still hasn't told Joe. Six weeks later. So, yeah, six weeks later, he still hasn't bothered to do it. But now there's a coaching vacancy, and it would be one that uh, he perhaps fancied himself as uh, as might might have a shot at it. I think, you know, speculating that uh, he would have gone to Joe, uh, made this report about the shower incident to Joe, uh, trying to make the, first of all, get FaceTime with him and trying to make the impression of, uh, yeah, he's a good Boy Scout. He's a loyal guy. Uh, he's here doing what he's supposed to be doing in terms of reporting this to the head coach. And and so that's a scenario, a narrative that, that makes some sense, gives an explanation for why Mike is going to see Joe. And you you said something very interesting there. It's been under my scenario, a scenario that you know Malcolm Gladwell believes is true, and I, I and I know you believe is more likely to be true than anything else you've heard. You, you, just to be clear on that, you agree with that statement, right? Yes. Okay. And so you know, under this scenario, it provides an explanation for why Mike is suddenly going to see Joe Paterno because this job has opened up. But I also find it very fascinating that let's think about the logic here of John McQuarrie and John Dranoff asking you for an update. There, there was some urgency with regard to them, right? I mean, is it, is it fair to say that they were a little befuddled as to why they hadn't heard anything? Is that, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I, I don't. They weren't excited, but uh, you know, they certainly felt like, "Geez, we hadn't heard anything. What's going on?" Well, let's think about this logically. Mike is very close to his dad. They live in the same town. Uh, obviously, we know from the fact that he he says the first person he spoke to when he he witnessed this was to call his dad. Yet Mike speaks to you and Tim Curley. We think on the nineteenth of February. There's now several days that have passed before you meet with John McQuarrie and John Dranoff. And Mike never mentions to his dad that he has spoken to you about this? Because if he had, there would have been no reason to ask for an update because they would have known he just met with you. However, if Mike is engaged in a effectively a cover-up here and is afraid to tell anyone because there's been a six-week delay in his report, he might not tell his dad because then he would expose he never went to Joe Paterno. Do you see where I'm going with this, Gary? Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't make any... How, how does it make any sense that Dranoff and McQuarrie, a couple of days after you meet with Mike, would be asking for an update? That doesn't make any sense. That's not they have to know that's not enough time to do an investigation of this, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I took it as as okay and normal because uh, my understanding. I mean, I, I I think we all continue to believe that uh, Mike reported this to to Paterno on the tenth, and uh, between the tenth and the time I met with uh, with Dranoff and McQuarrie. I, I 
thought it was quite normal that they might have assumed that we had put together a game plan. What do sure. we want to do about it? Sure. We heard about it a week and a half ago, maybe close to two weeks. Sure. Uh, what are you doing? Sure, that's fine. So, but but Mike, but but we clearly Mike has not told his dad that he met with you and Tim Curley, which seems like a yeah, pretty significant. That, that never came up. It, they never uh, seemed to indicate or acknowledge that we had met with Mike, and I did. I, I don't recall ever telling them that uh, we had just met with Mike either. Okay, so they're, they're clear. I simply confirmed that uh, our intent was we were going to be there was going to be an investigation. This was going to be looked into. Right, and and so it's consistent with my theory that Mike has something to hide here. He it, 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 because otherwise, naturally, you would think he would have mentioned this to his dad. And so, so let's get down to brass tacks and why this is so incredibly important. If if I'm right, and and, and people have looked at this, all say that they, it makes more sense than any other scenario that they've they've heard. Then we've got a six week gap between the time that Mike McCrory allegedly witnesses this and he goes to see Joe Paterno and he goes to see Joe Paterno under highly suspect circumstances. Uh, That's right, Gary, that's completely inconsistent with the narrative of someone who saw a sexual assault, correct? That's that's absolutely. Especially if he would have seen anal rape. I mean, something as egregious and shocking as that would be. Of course. Uh, That's just not, that's just not credible. Gary, I've said, what kind of guy? I mean, Michael Query's how big? I mean, he's Six a big guy. Four. Right, right. So what kind of guy witnesses something like that? An old man in the shower with a little boy and does nothing and walks away. Well, Liz, he, he has been roundly criticized uh, for exactly that. I've been criticizing him from the get-go. stop it? Right. The real crime, on top of the crime, is him not doing anything. Yeah. If it's true. All right, so... So let's go now uh, back to this issue of your role and, and Jerry Sandusky's potential defense. So you are out of the picture. Tim Curley's out of the picture. Had you been, let's say, in, in a pretend world, not indicted, and you're uh, you know, either in the courtroom or you're following closely the case, and the defense sees you as one of their star witnesses, and, and you hear that John McQuarrie is saying that the, this meeting occurred a couple of months uh, after this event, and and John Dranoff eventually says, up to three months later, are alarm bells going off in your brain as as far as as, as whether or not that makes any sense to you? Absolutely, because you're you're thinking yeah. a couple days, right? So yeah, so, of course, yeah. So so if you had been there, if you had been you know as you should have been a, a defense a star defense witness, you might have or very likely would have said to somebody, "Hey, uh, you might want to look into this. This doesn't make any sense based on my recollection." Is that a fair assessment? Yes. And and you know what, Gary, in that in that form or whatever whatever you have that that indicates February tenth was the day that you talked to McQuarrie. Well, no, nineteenth. The ninth. We they, we don't 19th. know for we don't know a hundred percent, but we think it was February nineteenth when but, he but, he meets with Mike McCreary. But there's and Tim something Curley. that you have, Gary. There was something that you had that indicated that. Well, Liz, uh, what I have is um, two things. First of all, I know that we learned about this the weekend of February tenth, and yeah, that's what I'm Tim Curley about. and mm-hmm. and I and Graham Spanier all jumped on this. Real quick. In fact, and you have that, that written Sunday, down. We, we jumped on it. Yeah, that's all in emails. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, and, and emails mm-hmm. and and you know contemporaneous notes of mm-hmm. conversations and meetings and so forth. My my impression was then. Remember, I said I shortly after that had to go to Iowa. Yeah, yeah, of course. But I had I, a, do. I had a general impression that Kim suggested it'd be good for he and I to meet with Mike, and I agreed. That it was it, it took longer to get to Mike than I really would have liked. But it was because I wasn't around that we couldn't get to him any sooner than that. Right. So it was it was more than a week. Well, that kind of puts it in that range of, of the 19th, the first day I got back mm-hmm. to my office after the trip to Iowa. All right. But secondly, Mike McQuarrie himself was asked about it, and he said a week to 10 days, I believe, right. after he reported it to Joe Paterno. Mm-hmm. Well, that's exactly what it is. It's like the 19th or 20th. It's 10 days or so. Right. Uh, following his report to Joe. So that's what allows me to zero in on the meeting with Mike McQuarrie being around the 19th or 20th of February. I feel pretty confident about that. Okay, so a few more things on this line of questioning, Gary, and and thank you for being so generous with your time. Um, But there's so many important elements of this. So uh, it, it is my view that there's at least some circumstantial evidence the prosecution knew that there was a problem with the date. And, and, and I, I come to this conclusion based upon a couple of things. Number one, I find it astonishing that they have these emails turned over by you that they believe indicates a cover-up, right? That's what the free report, that was the entire foundation of the free report, were these emails that you guys are sending to each other Graham Spanier and Tim Curley, this is proof of a cover-up for Jerry Sanusky's crimes, which, based upon my eight, nine-year investigation, this is about as close as you can get to actual evidence that Jerry Sanusky is guilty. And yet, and yet, even though they claim to believe these emails are evidence of a cover-up, which would be incredibly powerful evidence for them, those emails are never presented in the prosecution of Jerry Sandusky at his trial. And I believe it's because, one, they don't really believe there was a cover-up. And two, I believe they think that with embedded within these emails is a problem for them. And they don't want to deal with that. And so they would rather save these emails for their buddies in the free report to come forward after Jerry Sandusky is convicted. And then the free report can claim to have new, brand new bombshell information proving this Penn State cover-up. What do you make of, of that assessment? Well, it certainly sounds plausible. Uh, I mean, so much of this, it, it's taken me years to try to you know, to come to some rationalization of how all this took place, because at the time it was just bizarre. It made no darn sense. Uh, but, you know, now a few years distant from it, uh, and more information that I'm aware of has come to light, uh, what you just said makes a lot of sense. And and it's important, because because... Uh, you know, if they and, and there's by the way, there's there's another piece of, of evidence that is consistent, Liz, with my theory on this. It's not just that the emails don't get uh, presu- produced at Jerry Sandusky's trial, which to me blows apart the idea that the prosecution even believes in this, because if they really believed in it, this would have been front and center. This would have been the first thing they showed the jury is, oh, my gosh, there was a cover up at Penn State. And, and, and that's how Jerry Sandusky got away with this. But there is a notation in the free report, Gary. 
that to me would not be there if they didn't think they had a problem with the date because there is a notation in there that theorizes that your meeting with John McQuery and Dranoff occurred not in February, as you're now positive it happened. They theorize it happened in May without yeah. any, with, without any, <laughs> without any evidence at all. The free report sticks in there that this meeting between Dranoff and Schultz and John McQuery happened in May. Now what's May three months exactly. later. So the longest amount of time, a right. couple months. Oh, right. we'll say three. Right. So, no. so, so that to me is evidence that somebody knows there's a problem and they need that meeting to be pushed back as far as they can. One, because they know there's a problem with the date Two, because it forwards their narrative that Penn State was so slow walking this that all these months later, still nothing has been done. Is there any chance at all that your meeting with the, with McQuery and Dranoff took place in May that year? In my mind, it's zero. No chance. Why is it zero? Why is it no well, chance? Well, uh, <laughs> Two reasons. One is, as I recall it happening fairly shortly after the uh, report to um, Joe Paterno. And secondly, I remember clearly what I told them in the meeting, and that was, you know, that an, an investigation is going to be taking place. It was right on the front end of this whole saga. It wasn't in May. By May, everything was, okay. <laughs> it was a long, long that train left long before that. And we know that from emails. I mean, there's no question about that. Now, again, we're, we're, we're wrapping this up, Gary, and I appreciate your, your patience. But th there's another important element. There, this date thing, this is why I'm so fascinated and focused on this and why it's so important. Because there's so many different elements of the case it influences. One of the things that looked really bad for Jerry Sandusky at the time was that uh, it was reported, and, in, and I believe it was even in the, the, the presentment, although I could be wrong about that, but it was, it was well known that when Tim Curley first goes to, Ger to Jerry Sandusky and says, hey, we have this report about you showering with a boy, what can you tell me about it? That Jerry says he has no idea what he's talking about, and it appears in retrospect, to be an indication of Jerry trying to deceive Tim. Hey, that, that somehow he's there's a consciousness of guilt there, that uh, he's not being straightforward with Tim. And that later, Jerry comes back and says, oh, okay, I think I know what you're talking about. And in fact, if you want to talk to the, to the kid in the shower, let me give you his name. And Tim decides not to call that person who ended up being Alan Myers. It, it, that even bothered me, uh, Gary, for quite a while, because that was one of the few things I'd ever seen that indicated any semblance of a consciousness of guilt. But you know the nature of that conversation that Tim had uh, with Jerry, and now with the context of this date problem, doesn't it make a heck of a lot more sense that Jerry had no idea what Tim was talking about? Because that conversation happens at the beginning of March, which is now well, two full months plus after the event. And of course, Jerry's going to be confused because so much time has passed, right? Well, exactly. And, and I'd be uh, honest, I don't know exactly uh, how Tim uh, explained the incident to Jerry, but it would seem logical that Tim would have conveyed that 
you know, this incident was reported, you know, in, in just recent weeks, like two, three weeks ago. And, uh, because, you know, because, because that's Tim, what, that's what Tim thought, that's what Tim understood. Right. Because when McQuarrie so comes Jerry to you guys, would have been scratching his head. I, I, I can imagine and saying, wait a minute. Oh yeah. Cause Tim told me, and I think he's, he's quoted elsewhere. Tim told me when he first approached Jerry, Jerry couldn't recall, in fact, denied that anything like that happened. And then subsequently, as John said earlier, he recalled it and he got back to Tim later. But um, initially, he was he was just completely, you know, uh, unable to uh, to recall anything. You're saying he's baffled by the the exact date. So Tim goes to him and goes, "Hey, this thing was showering," and he gives a date or a time or whatever. And Jerry, can, because Jerry remembers he showered with no, somebody. No, but, but hold on a second. No, no, no. I, I think I think context is important here because okay. because what Gary just explained is is very significant. Okay. Everyone's thinking that Mike has come to them contemporaneously, right, Gary? I mean, you presumed that, right? Correct. Right. right. So, we, so we were all feeling that the incident occurred on the 9th of February. Right. Mm-hmm. Because you're just presuming that. I mean, that's just you know, that's just the most logical way. You, you may not. By the way, you may not have even ever asked Mike McQuarrie what date this happened. Right. That's correct. I mean, there was nothing that you don't know if there's anything in your emails or whatever. There but, was nothing in there that said Mike said this happened three weeks ago. No, nothing. The, the, okay. was, it was nope. just presumed. I mean, and, yeah, and by the way, by the way, think about how this happens. As soon as Joe Paterno concludes it happened the night before, and, and, and that gets passed up the food chain, that's what everyone's going to presume, right, Gary? I mean, because, one, it's Joe Paterno, and two, that's just the way human beings work. I mean, oh, okay, he's coming forward right after this happens. So everyone's presuming this is contemporaneous in nature. Tim is presuming it's contemporaneous in nature. And as Gary just said, if he – Liz, think about this. We're now – in late February, early March, mm-hmm. Tim Tim comes to to, to Jerry Zandusky says, "Hey, uh, we we've got this report about you showering with a boy." And let's say that Jerry hasn't showered with a boy since December 29, yeah, 2000. But he did then. But it it's was not, only a few months but earlier. But it's not not it, even a it's month not and a, a couple it's, days. It's not well. It's two months. It's two full months. December. It's two two full months later. I don't think it's a stretch that that event that is not that big of a deal. He's going to go. What are you talking about? Because he's thinking that this happened, as Gary just said, within the last week or two. He's being asked about. Okay. So he's he's being asked about something he thinks is alleged to have occurred in the last couple of weeks. Okay. And so he's not thinking about December, late December of two thousand. And then he goes back and he goes, Well, wait a minute. Must they have been talking about? Alan and me, when we got back from our book signing in Washington, PA, and, uh, you know, in what what he doesn't even probably remember what the date was at that point. So that to me is a is a much more plausible scenario that explains, in a weird way, Jerry was in was was in a worse situation because Mike delayed than he would have been if Mike had been contemporaneous in his report. Uh, you see where I'm going with that? I, I got it. Okay, now. okay, okay. It's so, clear to me now. all right, so. Um, all right, now a couple other things I want to move on from the date, even though that's very, very significant. Uh, Gary, I can't even remember the last time you and I talked about this, so, but I don't want to blindside you. But I, your memory is really good. Uh, you are aware that Mike tried to claim that he went to police to report this, and in fact claimed to have gone to two different uh, entities of the police. And then on cross examination, it turned out he was referring to you as one person on two different occasions. Are you are you aware of that? Uh, yeah, I, you know, 
he, he started receiving criticism that if he saw someone having a sexual encounter with a child, why didn't he go to the police? And uh, I think in order to, you know, cover himself, he basically made up this story that, well, he did go to the police. He did talk to the police. He talked to me. Well, of course, I'm not a policeman. Now, technically, you're a, you oversaw the campus police, correct? Well, the way that works, it's, it's kind of a, uh, it's one of the most unusual and probably it's unique uh, in, uh, in the university. From an administrative point of view, the police reported to me. So, you know, from human resources and budgets and policies and so forth, the police were part of my organization. But as sworn law enforcement officers in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, for their police work, they don't report to me. They're, they're completely independent of the university. And, you know, they, they report up the chain of the district attorney and so forth. So there's no way I have any control or influence over the police work. I do over their budget and hiring practices and so forth. Gary, forgive, forgive me so, on this one. Forgive me on this one. But a, a six-foot-four guy, uh, why don't you go to police? And he starts hearing criticism of that, and he, he comes up with this story that he talked to you. A six-foot-four guy who witnesses a crime like that should have just beat the heck out of Darius Sandusky right then of and course. there. I can't. That's Please, right. Absolutely. I cannot help but say it every time because to me it's like, what? He's not me. He's not a five-foot-three, 100-pound woman who can't do anything, right? He's a <laughs> six-foot-four guy. I bet you even if... I bet you even if you I'd have saw, killed, I'd have killed him. You would go I in swear there to you. and raise Would I have killed him? <laughs> yes, Liz. I'd have raised the Liz, high heaven Liz, right there. Liz, you, you would have stopped Screamed it. and yelled. You would have stopped it for sure. All right, but, but, mm-hmm. but, but there's more significance to this story of Mike citing you as the police, Gary. Uh, are, do you remember, are you aware of the story Mike came up with to substantiate why he thought you were police? Do you remember this? I have a vague recollection that he mentioned something about being present during riots or something. Right. And this is really interesting to me. And it goes back to the whole date problem. So, you know, and, and you've put your finger on it. The, the p- social pressure here had a big impact on Mike. Mike desperately needs, and Liz is the perfect proof of this, he desperately needs to show he went to some law enforcement authority to get people off of his back. So he comes up with this idea that you, Gary Schultz, are the police. And his justification for that is that he saw you uh, on a walkie-talkie during a campus riot, and you appeared to be giving uh, instructions or orders. Now, I'm curious, I mean, I'm sure you remember the, the riot in question, but does this, does this even sound plausible to you? I mean, does this sound like something that could have happened? No, no. Here, here, here. Uh, this is the first John I ever heard that he said that he saw me on a walkie-talkie. Uh, but, but that, the fact is, is that I never use a walkie-talkie in any of my involvement at Penn okay. State. All right. Well, uh, I there were uh, there were some racial tensions that were occurring around that time in two thousand two thousand one. And there may have been some demonstrations, and he may have seen me at these demonstrations. So that's plausible. Okay, but how he reaches a conclusion that somehow I was the police 
baffles me. Okay, well, it gets even better than that, Gary. And and let's let's put aside the walkie-talkie thing for a second. Let's just you know, I that's not that significant. But there's no question that he has referenced you, uh, you know, in, in some sort of leader position, leadership position at a riot. Well, here's what's really interesting, as we all know. His first version of events was that this occurs on March 1st. He sees Jerry Sandusky in a shower with a boy, March 1st, 2002, right? Well, the second version, of course, is February 9th, 2001. He comes to you guys in in February. So this whole thing is over uh, by early March of 2001. I'm sure you don't remember, so I'll just tell it to you. The date of the riot in question was March 25th, 2001. After, <laughs> after. Gary, Gary just laughed. It, I mean, it is ridiculous. But again, this no, whole No, but do you understand the significance? I understand of, okay. it, yes. It, it yes. didn't happen yes, yet. I get it. It didn't happen yes, yet. Yes, John. Okay. The, yes, and we're having a gigantic long discussion about a six foot four guy who, you know, we're, the only reason why it even comes up as why didn't you go to the police is because he went to his dad like a little baby. That's his okay. first explanation okay. of this. Sorry, Gary. Okay. <laughs> All right. Now, now, Gary, a couple of the just quick things to wrap things up. Just be, and I know we've talked about some of this uh, in, in a prior interview, but just to be a hundred percent on the record here. When when this story first broke, you had no evidence or inclination that Jerry Sandusky was a pedophile, correct? Correct. Yes. Okay. All right. So so you and and then have you ever been personally involved? Have you ever had any evidence come to you at any point in this case from 1998 through today that that had independent evidence in front of you in any capacity that indicated to you that Jerry Sandusky was a pedophile? No, none. And. While you obviously have no direct knowledge of the nature of the of the accusers, and I know you don't want to besmirch the accusers, have you seen any independent evidence at all other than their testimony that would indicate to you that Jerry Sandusky was ever a pedophile? No. And do you believe, based upon all the information you have in this case and all your interactions with Jerry and all your interactions with the people of the second mile and all your interactions with other people who were involved in this case, do you believe that Jerry Sandusky was a pedophile? I personally don't. I just would say that, uh, I, you know, I don't have all the evidence that perhaps was presented. Everything I've seen doesn't seem convincing and credible to me. And all the things, some of which we've, most all of which we've already talked about, just brings into question about the whole darn case with regard to the 2001 incident, which raises questions about the credibility of the whole, whole darn thing, in my mind. So what I have often said is you might not, talking to a hypothetical person, you might not believe that Jerry Sandusky is innocent, as I think he is. But I can't believe that you believe he got a fair trial. I think all of us have to agree Jerry never got a fair trial. I'll agree with that. That's wrong. I'll agree with that at the very least. The thing that people will come at, and you already know this, the thing that people will come at you with, if you say, I don't think that Jerry is, is guilty, is they'll say, but all of those victims, all of those young boys who came forward, how would you respond to that? Well, Liz, I don't know. I mean, you know, you and John are asking me questions that I, I, you know, I rack my own brain about. 
And some of it just sounds pretty incredible that there's that many people. But a number of victims all had the same attorney. Uh, and, you know, Penn State, I mean, you, you have, uh, in my position, I would have to be speculating. You know, the, the evidence or the, the situation is that Penn State was opening up their bank account, and you have attorneys who uh, would have alleged victims. Uh, th- this thing, I think, just snowballed. And it sounds like an incredible, terrible coincidence that all this would have happened. But uh, I-, I think it's plausible that that's exactly what happened. And, Gary, you've lived it. I mean, you lived it not just when it happened, yeah. as, as, but, but and you know all the people, but you've actually lived a similar experience where you end up pleading guilty to a misdemeanor that you know you did not commit and that you are convinced didn't even have an underlying crime related to it, right? Yeah, that's right. And so if it can happen to you, on a, on, a, on a significant but smaller level, then clearly it could happen to Jerry. And, of course, let's be clear, the prosecution's entire basis of their case is there was a cover-up at Penn State, which helped him get away with this, which you know didn't happen. So, so if they're wrong about the cover-up, it's a lot easier to, to conclude that they're probably wrong about everything. And, and while we're on it, can we, in, in our last moments here, can, can you talk about the process of you deciding to plead guilty to a crime you know you didn't commit and whether or not uh, you, you would do it again or, or whether or not the, the pressure uh, that you knew was going to come from a, from a jury pool that was dead set against you was just so much that you had to, to plead guilty in order to prevent yourself from going to, to prison for an extended period of time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I had, uh, felony charges some met several of the charges were dismissed by a superior court decision which was uh ruling about it, it was a they were dismissed because of improper conduct by baldwin but nonetheless i still had remaining felony charges my attorney well and let me back up we knew based on the uh, surveys in the, the dolphin county area that we were going to get an incredibly biased jury pool. The amount of pretrial publicity and the nature of the pretrial publicity, particularly in that area, um, was just intense. It was, it was incredible. And you have to ask yourself, how in the world would anybody be able to be objective after being inundated with all that publicity? And I was uh, aware of a, of a survey that was done by uh, a local paper that asked uh, the citizens of Dolphin County various questions about Tim Curley and I. And uh, I recall one of them being, even if Curley and Schultz didn't do anything illegal, do you still think they should be punished? And an incredible, uh, significant majority of the respondents said yes. I thought that was very indicative of the fact that one way or the other, they were going to find us guilty to assure that we got punished. So my attorney came to me and he said that uh, the attorney general's office was offering us a misdemeanor plea. And he said to me, um, you know, if, if you go to trial, 
and you're found guilty on this felony, and it's quite likely that you will, you're going to spend significant time in jail. Maybe not the rest of your life, but a long time. And he said, uh, I think you should take this misdemeanor because you're a first-time offender. A judge is going to look at this and say, you know, it makes no sense for you to have jail time. The worst he could imagine was I might have a little bit of house arrest, but most likely the outcome would be we'd be put on probation. So I I didn't want to plead guilty because I didn't feel that it, I was, and I didn't feel I was being completely truthful. But my family, my my wife and, and my kids, really did a good job of trying to convince me that it was the better of the two options I had before me. And so I agreed that I was going to go ahead and do it. And are you still happy with that decision? I mean, you've gone now through the process. You've gone to, to prison. Uh, well, you, you, certainly, yeah, certainly I wasn't happy with the ultimate you know, verdict as it came out. And I had to do jail time and house arrest time and all. It was much more serious. But I have to tell you, John, I, I, I still would be of the impression that I was at risk for the felony right. conviction. And, um, you know, I, that jury, I, I, have to, I have to tell you, I am quite pleasantly surprised that Graham Spanier wound up only being convicted of a misdemeanor uh, failure to report charge. That was, that was surprising to me. But he rolled the dice. I wasn't willing to do it. Oh, and to be clear, you didn't think you were going to go to prison. Uh, I mean, you, you you didn't know that, but you did not think when you made that deal that you would be going to prison. Because in a, in a normal case, you wouldn't have gone to prison. Uh, and and, yeah, and there's been nothing normal about this case, but that that's exactly right. Remind me what the the plea for the misdemeanor was. What's the misdemeanor? Well, he, he, the misdemeanor was it's failure the, to report. It's the failure to report. Failure to report. Yep. And the failure to report. And you go to prison for that, right? When when that shows you that incredible bias right there, right? And and so just to be clear, though, you know, you mentioned Graham Spanier, you were forced as part of your deal to to effectively uh, testify in the prosecution's mind against Graham Spanier, uh, and That's and I mean, how's your relationship with Graham after that? It's it's great. It's it's. it's yeah, we see each other. We communicate regularly. A very, very positive relationship between us. Even though, so he, I guess he must understand the position you were in better than anybody. Well, I think he understands it, and and he he knows that the testimony that I gave was completely truthful, as best I could recall everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he he knew I wasn't I. There's no question in my mind that the Attorney General's people would have preferred that I come up with some other non-truthful, sensational story that would have railroaded Grant. And I'm not, I, I, there's no way I would do that. Mm. So I testified truthfully, and, and I didn't feel that badly. Nobody likes to be, uh, you know, testifying against your former boss who you have such high regard and respect for. But I felt like my testimony was not that harmful, and well, it was all truthful. 
Well, I, I saw so, your I, I saw your testimony I, and, and actually convinced me that you thought that Jerry Sandusky was innocent because because I was yeah. I was watching it very very closely and not and not in the same way that everyone else was. But of course, you know your your critics would say, Gary, this is all still part of the same cover up. You got you you guys yeah. are all still involved in right. it. That's that's why Graham that's and Gary right. are still friends because they're all, they've they've gotten away with this thing and they've only they've they've only been convicted of misdemeanors and uh, this is all still part of the grand uh, cover up. And by the way, that you're still covering up for Jerry Sandusky to this day because obviously Jerry's going to be able to repay you in some sort of way uh, that, that is uh, beyond anyone's imagination. So, uh, I mean, look. Don, unfortunately, what you say is absolutely true. Um, my credibility is blown, um, you know, from the beginning of being charged uh, with perjury. Um, it, it's got to the point where I feel like, uh, you know, I, I, can, I can tell my story that I know honestly is as truthful as I can be, uh, but I still know that there are people who have their minds made up and are going to assume that everything I'm telling you is somehow orchestrated as part of the cover-up. Gary, if... if I, I have to live with that. You have to live with that. And how, how about if, if Jerry Sandusky should ever get a fair trial, another trial, and let's just say he gets another trial, let's just say, you know, somehow you're vindicated in all of this, does that work? Does that, I don't know, you've been through so much here. Yeah. Well, I have, I have, I have really conflicting um, feelings inside, Liz. Uh, one is I, I really would like to push this out of my mind and move forward with the rest of my life and not have this be such a big drag on me all the time. It's been terrible for my family and for me to... To go through this, and I'd like to get over it, and I and I am getting better. It, it's it, it's better than it used to be by far. But I, the, the other thing that I feel is Jerry didn't get a fair trial, and I know, and I, I'm a big advocate that he should get a uh, he should get another trial, and I know that's just going to kick up all the stuff again, and I'm going to be back in the middle of it. I'll probably wind up having to testify. And so, uh, you know, it's just the opposite of what I just said I wish I could do, move forward and put this out of my mind. Well, Gary... So, you know, bottom line, uh, I'm conflicted. Well, but well, I, I, I'm not wavering on being in favor of Jerry getting a fair trial. Well, Gary, thank you so much for, for taking the time to put it on record and to tell the, the full truth for the first time. Uh, you know, th- there's so much about this case that is upside down. I, I, I do find it... Uh, rather remarkable and emblematic of this entire fiasco that the one guy I was concerned about at the beginning, maybe having done something wrong, is, is the guy who has actually done the best job of standing up for the truth and who I have more respect for than anybody else in that pool of people, and that's you. Uh, so you deserve a lot of credit, and I apologize for ever thinking uh, that, that uh, you might not have had the best of intentions at some point in this. Because uh, I was dead wrong about that. Because you 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 uh, hit it out of the ballpark uh, in both the interviews that we've done, and it's really important from a historical record perspective. And I thank you for enduring. Because I know this is not easy. I know it's as painful yes. to relive this. Yes. And, and so thank you so much for doing that. Yes. And and Gary, I so I know that it can seem so insensitive for us for the way we talk to you, but it takes a tremendous amount of courage to do what you're doing. So thank you for that. Well, you're welcome. Well, Gary, we'll keep in touch, all right? Okay. 
Hang in there. Both take care. Thanks, Gary. Hang in there. We wish you the best. So, Liz, there is so much to say about that Gary Schultz interview. Let's start with the very end. I'm sure it sounds to people as if Gary Schultz was getting very emotional. And oh, I, he was. And I know that to be true because I we're taping this now after that interview had been conducted. And he actually apologized to me, bizarrely, uh, for getting emotional. But I think we both understand why he got emotional. And, and It's embarrassing to get emotional. That's why he apologized. He no, wants I, to control I himself. get it. But I'm, a, I'm amazed that he's been able to hold it together through all this. I mean, here's a guy who had a sterling reputation, was living the dream, was retired, thought this was all a past part of his life, and, th- and then he gets dragged back in over something he did not do and is as almost as certain as I am that never happened, that Jerry Sandusky himself is, is innocent. And there were so many, substantively, so many elements of that interview that are significant. One that even surprised me, and obviously I've been living this now for nine years, was hearing Gary Schultz talk about the grand jury process and how obviously they were, uh, they were blindsided, that they, they were effectively set up by the prosecution, that he had no clue he was going into the lion's den there. No, right? I mean, that was the impression yeah. I got. I mean, the the level of naivete. But but and, not. But they had no clue, John, because they didn't do anything. They, they apparently, as far as we can tell, didn't do anything wrong. They could, if they did something wrong, they'd have a clue. They didn't. Th- that you know, what you so, just said there is so important. Keep and them it's inside per- them. They it, didn't. It pervades every element of this case. The lack of consciousness of guilt. Everybody. From Jerry Sandusky to Dottie Sandusky to Graham Spanier, Joe Paterno, Tim Curley, Gary Schultz. There's no consciousness of guilt anywhere. And they I didn't need, they didn't uh, feel they needed to protect themselves from anything. Well, I, I maintain that's part of what made them vulnerable. Yeah, I know. If, if they had been guilty, if they had been <laughs> if they had been guilty, they would have been prepared. If they had been guilty, they wouldn't have concocted a cover-up on state-owned. Yeah email servers they would would never have done that they would they would never have done any of the things that they did if they had actually been guilty an innocent person who believes in their own virtue and believes in the system is incredibly vulnerable in a situation like this i i maintain i've told graham spanier this although we haven't spoken for years I, i believe that he was particularly vulnerable, and all these guys were, because these were guys to whom the system had been very good their whole lives. They believed in the system. They had lived charmed lives. And they. And I've seen this happen in other situations where people who, uh, I mean, one that comes to mind is, is Matt Lauer, uh, you know, has become a very good friend of mine. I believe Matt Lauer and and to a lesser extent these guys they're like uh, z- you know animals in a zoo where they lose their survival instincts over the years because they think everything's so wonderful the world is great we're in academia or ivory tower and you know every you know we're we're at Penn State and Joe Paterno is the winningest coach of all time and a, and a beacon of of character and and wow isn't you know it's this happy valley life is awesome and they are completely unprepared 
when the barbarians are at the gates. They have, they have no coping mechanisms whatsoever. And, uh, you know, and, and this is partially why <laughs> I, I believe one of the many reasons why I am involved in this story. Because I have not lived a charmed existence. I've been battling my whole life. Every single element of my media career has been uphill against the wind on but John, ice. John, if you're and innocent, so, if you're innocent, you don't think you knew. I'm innocent. I didn't do anything. You don't think. A hundred percent. You're innocent. In you don't have to be in the system. Innocent people are the most difficult to defend. It's one of the many things I've learned from this situation because they don't think they need a defense. O.J. Simpson immediately gets the dream team because he's guilty as fuck. Immediately. Immediately. <laughs> so, so, hesitate. So, so, <laughs> Kardashian didn't last long alone, man. They D jumped right. in there with the team. I mean, Jerry, saw, Jerry Sandusky gets Joe fucking Amendola because he thinks he's innocent. <laughs> so, I mean, that's that's the way this works. But, How bad could it be? I didn't do anything. It's not going to take, like, uh, what are but, you talking about? But. But the, the Gary Schultz uh, interview to me is is important for so many substantive reasons, but also emotionally. You heard him talk about Tim Curley and the toll that this has taken on Tim and yeah. and my theory that it's because Tim has guilt over the not making the phone call to Alan Myers that would have changed everything back when the Mike McQuarrie episode actually did occur, which... It, you know, in my opinion, very strongly was December 29, 2000, and that, that Tim doesn't hear about it until uh, the, the early spring of 2001 and decides not to make a phone call to Alan Myers to verify that Alan Myers was the boy and that nothing actually happened. And Tim has never spoken about this. Uh, Gary Schultz chose his only interviews ever done to this point uh, to do with me and with us. Uh, I actually feel badly uh, for Gary Schultz, not just that this all happened, but you know, I, I wish that he was doing this interview, you know, uh, on a primetime television special. That's where it belongs. But he also knew that I was the only person that could possibly do the interview fairly and and had the the substance to be able to get into the details of this in a way that would actually tell the real story. The first interview we did, Liz, which is also available at FramingPaterno.com, he did purely for the record for his kids and any grandkids and you know uh, people who care about him he wanted there to be a record that he didn't do this which interview is better they're different there there's some of the same terrain is is covered substantively uh, this one here is more emotional and gets into maybe more of the human stuff in the first one we focused a lot on the date issue because that was when i was you know, creating my my argument that the date is wrong and Gary is such a key element of that. And let's be clear just one last time on Gary Schultz and the date. He is so good at being honest about what he knows and what he doesn't know. He's not, he could have told me things far more definitively if he was trying to concoct a narrative, right? But he's being very honest about the window he has for when that meeting took place with Mike McQuarrie's dad yeah. and Dr. Dranoff. And there is no possible way, there is no possible way that that meeting took place in a time period that makes any damn sense based upon Dranoff and, and Mike McQuarrie's dad's own testimony. Both of them. Under oath, make it clear that there's no possible way that meeting took place immediately after Mike McQuarrie meets with uh, Joe Paterno. There's no way. 
And, and, and if that didn't happen, the whole story falls apart like a house of cards. So, uh, you know, kudos to Gary Schultz for, for being willing to tell the story, at least put it on the record. And, uh, and if there's one interview you listen to in all this, uh, that to me is the one. And by the way, there's some stiff competition because we've there's all sorts of amazing interviews we've done uh, for this podcast. But to me, uh, Gary Schultz is by far the most significant.